The preaching of the word this morning comes from Psalm 1. It's a relatively short psalm and a very famous psalm uh, at the very beginning of the biblical Psalter. So if you have uh, your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Psalm 1. Uh, let us read this uh, word of God uh, together. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The reading of the word of God. Let's bow in a word of prayer, folks, uh, and ask for the Lord to bless us as we uh, meditate upon his word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you once again for the word of God uh, that reveals to us, Lord, the truths of our doctrines of grace. We thank you, Lord, for Christ our Savior, and we ask that as we meditate upon these words that it will remind us once again of Jesus of who we now are in Christ, uh, a reminder of what you call for us to do as your children. Hear us, dear Lord, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, I apologize. I know your bulletin says something in Isaiah uh, uh, 37. Um, uh, I don't know what happened there. I told him it was Psalm 1, and, and so uh, we are going to be meditating on Psalm 1 today. I just like the way I just threw Andrew under the bus. I apologize. And so... Uh, the opening of any literary work has a profound way of really helping us to remember uh, that work. And if you think about some of the maybe famous opening lines of literature, I'm sure you can uh, uh, be reminded of this. For example, call me Ishmael. I say that and you perhaps know uh, what literary work I'm thinking of here. Of course, the Herman Melville's great uh, uh, epic work, Moby Dick. Or it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Uh, Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities, or perhaps even something more mundane and secular, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And if you don't know that, then just ask your children. I'm sure they can fill you in on where that is uh, from. Uh, the Word of God is very similar. There are certain books in the Bible that have sort of memorable openings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or perhaps, in the beginning was the Word of God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt with God's people. Uh, there are certain ways uh, that uh, works begin that are very memorable. Uh, and if that is true, then it might be helpful for us to remember and see how the book of Psalms begins. Why is it that the book of Psalms opens the way that it does? And as we do so, I hope that we can contemplate on Psalm 1, that some of the thoughts here are actually quite memorable, quite ingenious and quite introductory to the entire book of Psalms as a whole. And that's what I'd like for us to meditate on today, is to meditate on the truths of Psalm 1. And the main message that I'd like to share with you today from Psalm 1 is this, that the blessed man of Psalm 1 is a righteous man who is actually more than a man. He is a king. He is not just a king. He is the king. 
The blessed man of Psalm 1 is the righteous man who is more than a man. He is a king. He is not just any king. In fact, he is the true one and only king. My application that I hope that you'll draw from this, uh, from Psalm 1, is that you yourselves can actually see that this psalm is about you. There are three uh, thoughts I'd like for us to focus on here on Psalm 1. Uh, first is, uh, based on the first three verses, the description of this blessed man. The next is to describe, in contrast to him, the perishing man, the wicked man, and that you find in verses 4 and 5. Then some concluding thoughts in verse 6, and then some closing thoughts after that. Uh, and that's what I'd like to do today, is just the blessed man of verses 1 to 3, the perishing man, the wicked man of verses 4 and 5, concluding thoughts from the psalm in verse 6, and then just some concluding thoughts in general. First, uh, this blessed man. Uh, as we contemplate the idea of the, the blessed man, it, it might be helpful for us to just remember, what do we mean by blessed? Um, this is actually not the same blessed that you find um, uh, in, uh, in the book of Genesis, where the Lord blesses these days of creation. It's actually a different word here. Uh, the word blessed here perhaps is more better understood with the word happy. This is the happy man. Uh, happiness is for such a man. In fact, uh, one commentator says that perhaps we should understand this as good fortune or just happiness uh, in general. Uh, this is the hallmark characteristic of the man of Psalm 1. He is the happy man. A man who is obedient, that conforms to the law of God, is happy. You see, a life of sin, the degradation, a life that lives in rebellion against God, you see, that's a miserable way to live. And that is what the Word of God is trying uh, to communicate for us here. Well, by the way, I should say, although it says man, it isn't gender-specific. It is sort of humanity. So this is man, men and women uh, combined, and something for us to keep in mind as we reflect uh, on these truths. Um, Psalm 1 does describe this blessed man in three particular ways. In verses 1 through 3, he first describes what he is not to do, what he does not do. Secondly, it describes what he does do. And then thirdly, it gives you an image to describe his blessed state. First, uh, what he does not do. Uh, what is it that, that is descriptive of this man in terms of what he doesn't do? It gives us three different things here in verses 1 and 2. It says that first, he is one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This imagery of walking is obviously going to be something more than just mere walking. It's, it's a metaphor for living through life as you walk uh, through uh, the days of life on a regular, routine, daily basis. And as you do so, this blessed man is one who does not take counsel with the wicked. Now, to be in the presence of the wicked is unavoidable. We just simply can't avoid that. And in fact, I would say it's not, it's our Christian duties to not uh, avoid the wicked, but in fact, to uh, be amongst them. But as we live amongst them, we are not to take their counsel, you see. They have words of encouragement, words of advice, words of direction that are to be given to us, and we are not to heed their counsel. As we face different trials in life, and we face lots of trials in life, Folks, if that's not, uh, and that I think the last uh, six months or so has made that very, very obvious. 
And as we face these different trials in life, we reject the word of those who are immoral, those who are God-haters, those who have no interest in the glory of God. We walk amongst them, but we do not take their counsel. Not only are we not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, it's a secondly, we are not to stand in the way of sinners. Standing is a fixed posture or a fixed position. We stand in order to ponder, to reflect, to think. And the psalmist here says that the blessed man is one who does not do this in the, in the way of sinners. This, this word way is really talking about a path, a pathway of life. It's actually a very big wisdom word that you find particularly, let's say, uh, in the book, in the book of Proverbs, where the book of Proverbs describes two ways or two paths, the way of the wicked versus the way of the wise man. A happy man stands in the path of wisdom, and the path of wisdom helps us maneuver through life successfully, through all its landmines and all of its hiccups and glitches. The foolish man stands in the path of sinners, those who dare to violate the covenant of God, those who dare to reject his sovereign rule over their lives. So this blessed man is one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, and finally does not sit in the seat of mockers. Sitting is a relaxed position, one of comfort and one of ease. It presumes a certain sense of fellowship, of communion, a certain sense of letting your guard down, being vulnerable and open to matters of influence and persuasion. You see, a blessed man is one who does not take his seat amongst scoffers. Such a man is foolish. He will not only become immoral, but he will also become a God-hater. This, this word mocker is, is actually one of a variety of different words that you see used in the book of Proverbs to describe a variety of different kinds of fools. But this fool is actually the worst of the fools in the book of Proverbs, the foolish of the foolish. This is the, the man or the person who knows the things of God and consciously, intentionally tries to do the complete opposite. You see, someone who sits in a relaxed position allows himself to be to, to, to absorb the ways of the world. Someone who leaves himself vulnerable to the influences of, of, of the world around us is, some, is someone who eventually will reduce himself uh, to this level. The blessed man is one who does not walk, who does not stand, who does not sit with such people. Notice the, the progression there, folks. The, this uh, walking, standing, sitting, it really can represent perhaps one of two different ideas. One is perhaps a slow progression downward. You see, we don't go from a, a position of spiritual strength to that of spiritual degradation overnight. It never happens that way. It was, it's oftentimes begins with a certain level of compromise. It goes from a slow spiral downward uh, with stages of compromise that ultimately ends in sin, condemnation, and death. The blessed man is someone who doesn't even entertain the idea, you see. Someone who never begins this treacherous road downward. Now, it is true that the Lord is with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Absolutely, and praise God that is true. 
But you see, the wise man is someone who doesn't even enter into that valley of the shadow of death. So it could potentially be describing the slow progression downward, or perhaps it is trying to cover every aspect of life, walking, standing, sitting. These really discovers, uh, uh, describes every aspect of life. In other words, in the totality of everything that we do, in the totality of everything that we are, we are not to entertain the ways of sinners, mockers, scoffers, uh, immoral, uh, the immoral or anything like this. Uh, we are not to embrace their worldview, uh, and we are to hold to the word of God. So that is now describing what the blessed man is not to do. He is not to walk, stand, or sit in the ways of the immoral, the ungodly, the sinners, the fools. But what is it then is the man to do? What is it that he is to do positively? And interestingly here, the psalm has only one concept in mind. He is to reflect on the law of the Lord and focus on this on a regular basis. Look at verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Notice how this is in contrast to the wicked, sinner, mocking uh, person that we read about earlier who does not delight in the law of the Lord. You see, those folks are haters of the law since the law of the Lord, you see, is the law of the Lord. It is God's law. And for that reason, God's law has an intrinsic, theocentric nature uh, to it. And that is something that the wicked does not desire. This law is a reflection of the things of God. It's a reflection of his glory, his majesty, his holiness, his goodness, and power. These are all the things you could say that the wicked detest, but the righteous, the faithful, are the ones that love, that delights in, you see. The word meditate there, that he, he, is, he delights in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night, it is, is a Hebrew word, this word meditate is a Hebrew word that seems to suggest something auditory, uh, something verbal. It's a word that is used to describe the, 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 the uh, roaring of lions. It is used to describe the, the cooing sound of doves. It's actually used to describe even the, uh, the, the rumbling thunder uh, from lightning. The image that you get here then is someone who is uh, is ruminating on the word of God out loud. Someone who is perhaps saying the word of God out loud. You see, the image that you have here is, is someone who delights in the word of God. And, and on this law, on this word, he or she is murmuring the word of God every single day. They are, they are reciting the word of God everywhere that they go. It's like you are walking on, on, on your, and you're living through your life and you're reciting certain Bible passages out loud to yourself to remind yourself of the uh, of the Word of God. Uh, it's interesting because the same word is actually used in Psalm 2 describing the, the, the wicked nations. And the word there, interestingly, is translated as plot, that the nations plot against the Lord and against the anointed, the righteous one of God. You see, where the wicked will will murmur in trying to make unholy alliances against God. The righteous, the, 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 the just, the, the faithful will be murmuring, you say, regurgitating, verbally uh, uh, reciting 
the Word of God on a regular basis. This is the reason why the, the public reading of the Word is such a great thing and something that we should not take for granted. Even when it's a, a part of our element of worship, just simply to read the Word of God out loud, you see, is nourishment to our souls. In fact, I encourage you folks, in your, in your daily devotions, when, when you are meditating on the Word, don't just read it quietly, read it out loud. Read it to yourselves out loud. My wife um, has a, a Bible app. I'm sure you all have Bible apps on your phone that, that has uh, someone reading the Word of God to her. But, you know, someone who's just reading it out loud. She, she does this everywhere that she goes, uh, while she is driving, while she is jogging. And she jogs a lot, folks. I mean, she listens to the Word of God being read to her. And we have to remember that the, the, these words that we have, as we have it in printed form for us to read, is actually a relatively new thing. In the ancient world, remember, they no one had copies of the Bible on their own. The only way that you can get the Word of God in this ancient context was to have the Word of God read to you and for you to memorize and to say those words uh, murmuring those words. I see that's what Psalm 1 is describing here. For that reason, when my wife listens to the reading of the word, she, she, let's see, this, we are now at the end of August. I think she must have read, read through the word of God, if you want to say it that way. She's must have gone through it three times already in one year because she is constantly reading the word, having the word, uh, read, uh, to her. It's very reminiscent of what we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, how it describes uh, a, a corporate community, a family, that is uh, reading the Word of God. And now the parents are instilling this to their children, putting it everywhere that they go. So by the moment that they get up in the day, to the moment that they go to sleep at night, from the moment that they step out of the door until they come back home again, they are constantly exposed to the Word of God. Now with technology, folks, we have the ability to do this. Text your children a Bible verse every single day uh, or something something like this that exposes to them the Word of God. You see, that is what the psalmist is describing here. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and is verbally communicating this uh, all throughout his day. Uh, so we read about this blessed man. He is want what he is not to do, what he is positively to do. And then finally, you have this imagery of this blessed man, this imagery of this tree um, in verse 3, a tree planted by streams of water. Um, uh, the, the, the picture that you have here of a tree planted by streams of water is a picture of strength, uh, a picture of a tree with deep roots that are anchored into the ground, uh, a tree that is not being succumbing to the aridness of the environment around him, around it, uh, but it is in growing, it is vibrant, it is alive, it is verdant, it is, uh, it is uh, beautiful. This is a tree that yields its fruit in season. Uh, due to the life-giving waters that the tree is planted by, it produces its fruit uh, ready for the harvest at the end uh, of the season. So we also, uh, people who are so rooted in the Word of God, uh, are also going to show similar types of fruits that we find in the Word of God. Uh, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that are descriptive of the blessed man who meditates upon the Word of God. Uh, this tree, its leaves does not wither. See, what a fantastic imagery, a, a tree that is indestructible, 
a tree with leaves that does not die. Uh, it presumes perhaps the harsh elements um, that the tree faces, storms and, and the pounding heat from the sun. Notice what it seems to suggest here, that we will go through times of trials, times where it seems like the, the sinful world in which we live will pound against us on a regular basis. But one who is rooted in the word of God, one who is rooted in, in, in God himself and the message of scripture is someone who is going to be able to withstand this and be, in fact, uh, be able to be successful uh, and grow. The psalm so often speaks of things like this. So many laments, so many sad songs, so many wor uh, words of encouragement during times uh, of despair. And when we go through some times of despair, the man, the blessed man is one who can endure and does not wither away. In fact, it says, in all that he does, he prospers. He overcomes the trials and grows through them. In spite, not in spite of the trials that he goes through, but oftentimes because of the trials that he must endure. This is a picture of the blessed man. He is one who doesn't take counsel, walk with sinners and scoffers. He is one who delights and meditates, verbally re uh, reads the word of God. Such a man is like a tree, grounded, strong, firm, that is living, vibrant, and growing. The second man that we read here in Psalm 1 uh, is in contrast to this, the wicked man in verses 4 uh, and 5. We've already read a little bit of this wicked man already in, in contrast to the righteous man uh, in verses 1 through 3. Uh, this uh, wicked man is immoral, a sinner, a mocker, someone who rebels uh, against the Lord and his law. Psalm 1 then goes on to describe this, this wicked, perishing man in two additional ways. Again, it uses another image to describe his perishing state, and then it describes his final end. First, this perishing state in verse 4, it says that the wicked are not like this blessed man, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, of course, being the husk on grain that absolutely serves no purpose. It is just blown away uh, by the wind. This chaff symbolizes and represents something that is useless, that is vulnerable. Notice it's an interesting contrast. If I were to compare the tree that is vibrant and growing in the midst of a wilderness, the contrast to that might be something like a desert shrub that once had life and withered due to the heat of the sun. But that isn't what the psalmist contrasts uh, this blessed man with, not a desert shrubbery, it contrasts the blessed man to chaff. It is even worse. Chaff serves no purpose. Chaff never had a purpose. That is what a, a, a wicked man is like. Secondly, not only does it describe his imagery of the wicked man as being like chaff, it describes his end in judgment in verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The imagery here that you have is of the wicked man that cannot stand righteous before human courts. And in fact, even worse than that, he can't stand righteous, obviously for that reason then, even amongst the divine court, the judgment of God. He cannot stand before God's judgment because he is wicked. Thus, there really is a an end times theme here uh, to this psalm. Notice even the image of standing here, that the wicked cannot stand in the judgment. It's the same in contrast to verse 1, and the righteous who can stand, uh, who is not to stand in the path 
of sinners. Thus, to stand with sinners is to not be able to stand with God. You can't have it both ways. It's only one uh, or the other. You are outside of the congregation of the righteous. Such a man only knows wrath. As we uh, reflect on the righteous, the, the, the blessed man in verses 1 to 3, and then also on the wicked man of verses 4 to 5, the final point here is the concluding thoughts that we see in verse 6. As the psalm comes to an end, it does so with a sort of climactic theological flurry. Uh, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked uh, will perish. There are three things here in this final concluding thoughts in verse 6 for us to keep in mind. First, notice that the Lord is mentioned now for the very first time, by name. Now, the Lord was present in verses 1 through 5 previously, but he was more of an implicit presence there. Here he is named specifically, explicitly, and he is now described as a major actor in the actual engagement uh, of uh, his dealings with the righteous and uh, with the wicked. Number two, again, there's a contrast here between the blessed man, who is also now called the righteous man. The blessed man is the righteous man. It is contrasted with the wicked man, who is in fact now the perishing man. The psalm then contrasts these two different types of people. One is the righteous man. He is like a living tree filled with life, and thus he will only know blessedness. The other man is the wicked man. He is like chaff, and he will wither, and thus will only perish and die. The third thing that we see here uh, in this uh, final conclusion in verse 6 is sort of the literary contrast between the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. Notice that the Lord knows only the way of the righteous. This word know is a Hebrew word that gives you a sense of covenantal knowledge, um, uh, intimate knowledge, uh, provisional care, and intimacy. You see, the Lord knows carefully, intimately, the way of the righteous. Notice it doesn't say that the Lord does not know the way of the wicked. It, the Lord is distant from the way of the wicked at all. Uh, the way of the wicked is its own subject of the verb perishing. The way of the wicked will perish. You see, all their own actions leads them to the path then of their own destruction. So there it is, Psalm 1, folks. The picture of the blessed man who does not follow in the ways of this world, but delights and meditates on the law of God. The wicked man, who is like chaff, serves no purpose, will ultimately be judged and condemned. As I think of Psalm 1, I'm reminded of, of really two very important themes that you see here in Psalm 1. One is this imagery of the tree. It's very intriguing and very important. It reminds me of the tree of life. The tree of life that you read about in Genesis chapter 2, which also, by the way, is planted by streams of wanting water. Remember, folks, that the, uh, the description that you find in Scripture about the garden, about the Garden of Eden, is that, in fact, it was really just a cosmic temple where the Lord dwelt. This is the house of God, and this is where God dwelt uh, with, uh, with his people. Therefore, the garden, because it was the dwelling place of God, was a place only for the righteous. By positioning Psalm 1 as the opening poetic psalm for the entire book of Psalms, the Lord seems to be saying this. 
Description of the blessed life of the righteous is what you're going to find in this book of Psalms. But only the righteous may enter into it and read it and prosper in a literary garden sanctuary where they can commune with the Lord of the Word of God, the God of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is not for the wicked. If they dare to enter past this, all they will find is their own destruction and judgment. Just like it was prophesied fate of the serpent, that seed uh, of the serpent that was prophesied so many years ago. See, in that sense, Psalm 1 is almost like a, a holy protector, a gate watchman, someone who is protecting the sanctity of the book of Psalms as a literary sanctuary where God dwells and where he will dwell uh, with his people. It's very much like the cherubim that you read about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, that is guarding the entryway into the holy dwelling of God, just like the priests of the Old Testament that is guarding the sanctity of the tabernacle and of the temple. So Psalm 1 is doing something very similar. It is guarding the sanctity of the book of Psalms. This is only for the righteous. And if you are righteous and you enter in, what you will find is the blessed state. If you are wicked, read this to your own peril, to your own harm, for you will find nothing but condemnation and wrath. Not only is this imagery of the tree profound, but even the reference to the law of God. If it is true, folks, if we contemplate this for a moment, that Psalm 1 really is sort of this gate protector, if it is true, then, then we've got a problem here. Because then no one can read past Psalm 1 and enter into the book of Psalms. Who then is really qualified to read this book? We are all depraved sinners. We are all good Calvinists. We know that we are all totally depraved. There is no one then that can enter into this book. Is, is the book of Psalm nothing but then just kind of teasing us? Or is perhaps the book of Psalm doing something more? Perhaps it is preaching to us, leading the readers towards something that is greater than ourselves. By nature, all readers of the book are wicked and therefore perishing. And notice again the emphasis on the law of God that you read in verse 2. It is repeated there uh, in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That, by the way, is very unusual in Hebrew poetry to repeat that word because Hebrew poetry tends to be very economic in its word. Uh, it probably, if I dare say, the better poetry would be to say, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. By explicitly stating the word of God again sec a second time, it is really highlighting the significance of the word um, of God. This psalm could be anticipating the ideal messianic son of David, because in fact, the ideal son of David, the true king of Israel, is someone who is going to be one who meditates on the law of God. Notice, uh, you don't need to turn to this, folks, but if you read Deuteronomy 17, it is the job description of the ideal Israelite king uh, in verses 14 to 20 there. And it first lists all the things that the king is not to do. He is not to have a lot of money. He is not to have a lot of wives. He is not allowed to have a big army. And then it describes what he is to do. And what you find there, the positive description uh, of the, is the ideal picture of the Israelite king says that he is to write for himself a copy of the book of this law 
It says that he shall read it all of his days, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and his statutes. That's the only job description positively that is given to this king. Notice it says nothing about protecting the people. It says nothing about feeding the homeless and precarious. It says nothing about that. All it says is that the king is to meditate, copy, read, study the law, uh, the word of God, and do so on a regular, regular basis. Uh, the clear literary connection of Deuteronomy 17 suggests that the blessed man of Psalm 1 is in fact the son of David, the king, the true king, but not any ordinary son of David, but the ideal son of David. The depiction is one who is worthy to read the book of Psalms because he qualifies and fits the necessary prerequisites of Psalm 1. He's a righteous man who is like this tree, who is dedicated and delighting in the law of God. Yet again, we know near man who can fit this description. Only the Lord, only God can read the Psalms for this reason, because only the Lord is truly righteous. You see, Jesus Christ, he is the true man of Psalm 1. He is the one who didn't follow in the paths of sinners, who didn't associate with mockers. He is the one who delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it day and night. He is like that tree that is so firmly planted, rooted deep, showing fruits, living and vibrant and growing. But folks, we can even say even more than that. Because Christ came to live Psalm 1, and he did so for the glory of God, but he also did so for us. So that we also can be righteous and claim this psalm as our own. Those in union with Christ can also now read this psalm, enter into the book of Psalms, and know its blessing. In other words, folks, you see, in Christ, the blessed man of Psalm 1 is also you. This is a description of you in union with Jesus Christ. And we can know that this psalm is ours by seeing now our relationship to the law of God that is so prominent within this psalm. The righteous delights in the law, it says. On our own, we could never say that. On our own, we could never say we delight in the law of God. But it's only through faith in Christ that we can say that the law of God is our delight. It is only a delight by faith in the true law keeper, who according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, is the true king of Israel. Outside of Christ, the law is a burden, is a burden that only condemns. But only in Christ, the law is our friend. And it reminds us of the righteousness that is ours, that we receive, and that we receive only by faith. Praise God for Jesus, who gives to us that righteousness. Praise God for Jesus, who is the true man of Psalm 1. Praise God for our union with Christ, so that we can also be the blessed one of Psalm 1. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for reminding us once again of just how truly wondrous he is. He who accomplished your word, held to it faithfully, 
delighted in it, meditated on it, who accomplished, Lord, a perfect righteousness and didn't hold that to himself, but but imputed that righteousness to us, something, O oh Lord, that we receive and we can only receive by faith. And as we receive, Lord, that righteousness, and as we are now declared just before your very sight uh, because of that received righteousness of Jesus Christ, Lord, we can see that we now are the blessed men, the blessed person of Psalm 1. And now for that reason, by faith, we hold and claim to this psalm as our own. Not just this psalm, but the entire book of Psalms. Not just the book of Psalms, but the entirety of Scripture we can claim as ours, not because of anything that we have done on our own, but because of the merit, the righteousness of the true blessed man of, of Psalm 1, the true eternal King, Jesus Christ. Thank you once again for him. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Uh, bless us continuously as we continue in worship and reflections upon you. Hear us, dear Lord, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.